This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. TK, today's episode is going to be pretty much entirely questions from uh, listeners. So this is for you listeners. You the real MVP. Um, you the real MVP. <laughs> one of the first questions was, favorite hip hop artists for both of us. Uh, and I mean, without question, immediately I knew my favorite hip hop artist is TK Coleman. Word up. Speaking of, speaking of hip hop, I got a little rap that I wrote. You, you ready to hear it? I want to kick it off for, for all I your to listeners. Set it up because I, I, I'm setting you up to, to prove why you're such a great hip hop artist. So go ahead. Dude, right now I'm going to prove to the world why I'm such a great hip hop artist and humorous. That's from my man, Stevie <laughs> Patterson. Um, uh, but by the way, Steve, by the way, Steve, I'm referring to you now as Stevie Patterson because Isaac always makes fun of me for butchering people's names. He accuses me of calling Jeremy McClellan Jerry McClellan, even though I've never done that. So I'm calling you Stevie Patterson because like Stevie Wonder, you're blind to all of the lies of dogmatic academia. All right, man. Here's my rap. Yo, I got something to say. I'm mad at I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm gonna. All right. You know what? What threw you off? I is can't. That, I cannot laugh. Wait, wait, wait. What threw you off okay, is wait. that you need you need Puff Daddy in the background to be like, uh, I, yeah. That's I'll I need take you in the that background. Yeah, yeah. Right. I need you to be my hype man. Ready, ready. All right. All right. Yo, I got All something right. to say. Listen to my man. <laughs> I'm mad at Malcolm Gladwell yeah. today. <laughs> I practiced basketball for ten thousand hours and I still can't play. What? <laughs> <laughs> that might be the worst excuse for hip hop I've ever heard. Um, dude but that's funny though that's funny no no okay so seriously seriously let me let me talk no, about i know Mark i know Gladwell. after your episode with steve about whether or not you're funny and steve's wife thinks you are um, <laughs> you laid out like today on the show i have a four-part <laughs> categorical syllogism that will definitively prove my humor <laughs> no 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 seriously no seriously before we get to questions i wrote that malcolm gladwell map uh rap to poke fun of the people who get angry at him for talking about the 10,000 hour rule because I'm still looking for the people that have dedicated themselves to 10,000 hours of cultivating a, a skill and still can't demonstrate any competence. So I, I have a and little come away bitter about it that they didn't get yeah. what they were promised. Yeah. Yeah. So this reminds me um, back, back during the OJ trial when everybody thought he was guilty and he gets acquitted and Basically, the country is divided between white people who think he's guilty and black people who think he's guilty, but don't want to, you know, admit <laughs> that they think that. Um, so everybody's looking at OJ like he's guilty, and they ask OJ, "What's he gonna do now that he's been acquitted?" And he says, "I'm gonna uh, lead a search for the real killers." <laughs> and, and and you could see like the cops around him, like, uh, you know, and, and he thinks he's just got everybody's support on this. Yeah, I'm gonna have people helping me out searching for the real killers. So inspired by OJ's perennial quest for the real killers, I want to do like a documentary where it's like a search for the real killers, like talent wise. No, the real and this quitters. Will be a, a search for the, the real, real quitters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The real quitters. I like that even more. This will be for all the people that got their hearts broken even after following the 10,000 hour rule. So we're going to find a guy that practiced the piano for 10,000 hours and is still horrible. We're we're going to go demand a refund for the $29 (laughs) they spent on Gladwell's book. (laughs) 
you know? Yes, yes. I'll be the basketball example. I'll be like, look at TK's jump shot. This guy practiced for 15,000 hours in a sincere effort to be the next Michael Jordan. <laughs> oh, man. You know, that's a great um, – that's such a great theme that we – see in a lot of the stuff especially like in our facebook warrior stuff that we like to make fun of which is the the anger at the hypothetical or the concern about you better be careful what you're telling people not me i'm not going to be led astray into spending ten thousand hours doing something and then end up being screwed over but you're giving people advice that could lead them and it's always like show me the person these hypothetical you know people who are being destroyed by this stuff show me the dude with that dedication that's mad about the $29 he spent the search on, on, the on a book. Um, okay, so <laughs> today we have tons of questions that came in on Facebook and some on the website. Um, and we're just going to... Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, man. What? Hold, hold up, man. You, you mentioned Facebook. You mentioned Facebook warriors. I think there's a really good Facebook warrior about the very topic you just that, brought up. Okay, that's what I'm just about to say. Jeez. Oh, man. Could, come on. God. Get it together, this dude. Is, we, should tur- we should turn this into one of those like shock jack shows <laughs> where we pretend to, uh, you know, get like really angry all the time. Um, no. So but I was going to say before we get to the, you know, the, the legit questions and stuff on Facebook and the website, <clears throat> which we're going to fly through. It's going to be amazing. Lightning speed. We got to We're going to start with Facebook warriors. So Facebook warriors. Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you used a little more of the Wawa pedal that time. That was nice. Um, I had to put a little a shout out to BB King. In okay, there. so I've got a nomination, which uh, Derek McGill actually just shared with me. And I mean, I could have picked almost any from <clears throat> a number of these posts. We have Derek, especially, has done a lot of posts and Facebook things, blog posts and, and Facebook statuses and stuff about the concept of free work, which is, you know, in many ways. A, a version of what Praxis is built around this apprenticeship where you know you're the reason you're there is to learn quickly, get a foot in the door, become a master and prove your value so that you can create value at a, at a high level of compensation very quickly. And in the case of Praxis, you get paid $15 an hour. But the, the concept is that same idea that you apprentice when you don't have the skills to be hired on as a full-time employee, you go offer your skills you know, for free or for low, low cost to prove yourself. So we've written a lot about this, the power of free work as being better than a resume, better than a degree, a better way to get in the door, to gain value and to prove your value to people. Super simple concept. The amount of absolute stupidity and like panic and bizarre, ignorant snobbishness over this is just hilarious to me. And this is a, this is a typical comment. Somebody posted, I find the whole idea of free work abhorrent. Your time is valuable no matter your skill level. Okay, so, I mean, completely separate topic, whether your time is valuable, that has nothing to do with this. But anyway, let me get through the whole thing because it's, it's just too full of hilariousness. Read um, it all the way through one all time. Right, all right. I find... <laughs> it sounds like one of those outtakes they have on a hip-hop album in the studio where they're like, hey, get through <laughs> that chorus one time. Um, I find the whole idea of free work abhorrent. Your time is valuable no matter your skill level. Even when learning at a job, your time still has value. They pay you based on future value you bring or based on the work you are able to do at your skill level. Virtually no other country does unpaid internship. Um, 
lot of missed capitalization here. I have no problem with the getting university credit for time work as you are compensated with something that has value. But the idea that your time has no value is everything that is wrong with corporate culture in America. It's why you have guys with engineering degrees earning $12 an hour because they think it's okay to work 75 hours a week for 40K a year. We, all caps, have to get beyond the idea that we are valueless and realize that companies will take whatever we give them for free and give us nothing in return. This isn't like it was 60 years ago when many companies had loyalty to the employees um, as much as employees were loyal to companies. Your time has value even if it's university credit or some other form of remuneration, but free work is for fools. Okay, that end part especially cracked me up like university credit. So so let me get this straight. And this is this is consistent among all the critics. They love higher education and they can see it as completely fine and fair. And then they get right. a, free work a, is cool when it degree, comes to higher ed. They get a degree and they're in debt. And then they blame other people, businesses, owners, entrepreneurs, managers for not hiring them at a high enough price point to pay for this degree that was clearly worth it in their mind. Uh, and they say, it's your fault. You owe me a certain level of living up, you know, it has to do with my dignity. There's no concept of the fact that all money comes from value creation in the world of commerce. If you can't create value, you can't command resources. And so the whole point of free work is to prove, to, to gain the skill to create value and to prove that skill to create value. Now. That's also the whole reason they're going to college. And if they say it's anything else, they're delusional because all the other aspects could be had for free without paying a dime of tuition. If you just wanted the knowledge, the sitting in classes, the social experience, all that, you would never register for classes. So it's absolutely untrue that you're paying for that other stuff. You're paying for the signal to employers that you're worth paying a salary. So this person and so many like them, they think it's unfair for you to say, Hey, you know what? I'm 18. I don't know anything. I want to work for free for you for six months. And if I can prove myself, you can hire me. Oh my gosh, that's exploitative and horrible. You know, forget that nobody's making you do this. This is something you have the option to offer. At least uh, sometimes you do, but the, the, the law actually prohibits it in many cases. But it's totally fair to go spend $100,000 of money you don't have to sit in classes and go to college for four years and come out with no ability to get a job. Like there's no exploitation there. I mean, the amount of stupidity in this misunderstanding of what free work is, is truly astounding. So that's my number. Well, wait, 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 wait. You get credits. You get credits oh, in exchange yeah, yeah. for doing the free work at college. You get something valuable, which is credits, which will then help you magically be able to create value because you have credit. It's truly baffling. And here, here's the other thing, too. The inability to think about getting value out of an experience unless that value is money or college credit. I mean, th th those are the only concepts of value at play here, because if you expand that just an inch more, this argument self-destructs. Because when you go work for someone, whether you get paid or not, you accumulate experience, you develop new skills, you build social capital, and everything you will ever want in life is connected to those three things. You can't get the things you want in life without relationships, valuable relationships, social capital, TK, the trust TK, of other people. My time yeah. is valuable. How dare you recommend that I work out every day for my health? An hour every day? I should be paid for that. You know, like, like okay, so here's my idea. As, as a, I think this is what employers should start doing. You know what? 
uh, angry Facebook commenter, you're right. It's so wrong and exploitative of me to uh, allow you, if you want to, to work for free so you can learn and, and whatever. So instead, here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to make you pay me $20,000 a year to work for me, but I'm also going to ensure that the work you do, you don't learn anything valuable that will help you get a job with me after this apprenticeship. So we're going to, we're going to make a four year apprenticeship for $20,000 a year where you pay me to not get paid and make sure you don't learn skills that will help you succeed if you want to get paid later. Oh, well that sounds fair now, right? That's what, <laughs> that's what college is. It's absurd. Do you have a nomination for Facebook warriors or was it the same? Oh man, no, this, this, this cat wins. But here's another thing too. This whole idea that we should get paid based on our ontological value or based on our personal understanding of how much God loves us. That's not how it works in the market, right? In, in the market, if you want me to pay you, then you have to do something that is valuable to me. You know, the guy that's paying. And if I want you to pay me, then I have to do something that is value to you, you know, the cat that's that's paying. So value is subjective. It's not ontological. It's not spiritual. Yes, those things are real. God loves you, and he loves you more than he loves me, all right? But, and, but that has nothing to do with me giving you my money or someone else giving you their money. You got to do something that's valuable to them. So how much you feel your work is worth, harsh reality it just has never meant anything to anyone. I mean, if that were the case, I would have been in a beach house a long time ago, man. You know, it's it also speaks to the the Im, embedded notion we've all been raised with through the schooled mindset of the separation of learning and preparation, doing all the right things and studying all the right things so that then if you do it all, you just deserve a good grade. You deserve a job the same way you deserve a good grade, but I did all the things. I took the test. I deserve a job and income. The separation of learning from doing, because everyone would say, if I said to that very commenter, hey, you're really good at Facebook comments. Um, my son wants to come have you teach him how to do Facebook comments uh, once a week. That guy would probably be like, okay, but um, I'm not going to do that for free. So how about you pay me? you know, 50 bucks once a week for him to come and learn how to do Facebook comments. Now think about that. He's basically doing an employer who says you can work for me for free. If they said, well, wait a minute, you're actually going to be, you're going to consume some of my time. And at first you're not going to create any value. How about you pay me to come have the opportunity to learn how to work? There's, that's no different, but, but the idea of paying a teacher which is someone who you pay to teach you things completely divorced from experience is completely acceptable in our minds. But the idea of paying, whether in actual dollars, you know, I mean, in some places, I think it'd be worth it to pay a company to go work for them if you could learn from them, or just in time that you're giving up by not getting paid to learn by actually doing, we see this as somehow dirty because doing is something, it's a drudgery that you're supposed to do and get paid for. Learning is something that you do completely divorced from doing and you pay people to do it. And it's such a strange dichotomy. And, and then another element in all of this that makes it more complicated is this idea that once upon a time, companies were really loyal and they took care of people. <laughs> you know, I, At some point in history, people got paid because of the good folks who were just loyal to their workers. And, and then all of a sudden, 
things became mysteriously capitalistic and people started paying based on the perceived value they got out of out of the labor. When this happened, we don't know, but it's about loyalty. And 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 that that to me is probably the heart of the issue, this belief that this is where our money comes from. It comes from people being faithful to me. And this notion that businesses are just always looking for a way to rip you off, always looking for a way to get away with paying you less. What's misunderstood about this is that the argument is weaker if you grant the premises. If you say, yeah, 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 let's assume that they're always trying to figure out a way to cut costs. Why is that? Because they're interested in their own well-being. They're interested in their own profits. And cutting costs is one of the ways that they can increase those profits. And do you know what the best way to cut cost is for a business owner? It's to hire people that create far more valuable than they cost to keep around. And when you make yourself indispensable, when you transform yourself through hustle, through skill development, into the kind of person that's too expensive to let go, when you make people cry when you leave rather than when you come around, they will beg you for opportunities to pay them. So we have a Praxis participant who experienced this, who had one of her business partners sit down with her and say, you're creating so much value for us. I'm afraid that somebody else might offer you a deal that might draw you away. So I want to give you a raise right now to let you know where we stand with you. That I have another practice. I mean, I would say probably the majority of raises people get don't come from them prompting it because a lot of people are nervous about it. But from the employer recognizing I better pay this person because they're good and they're going to get noticed and I don't want them to leave. Oh, yeah. You know, so uh, another one of our participants, I posted this on Facebook. She told me this about two weeks ago. She needed a job. And, and for all the people out there, uh, you know, who, who think, oh, only privileged people say this. She already had a job. She needed a second job. And she went to a place that she wanted to work. And she said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll work for free. And after a trial period, if you like my work, then you'll agree to pay me a regular salary. If not, then I just move on to the next opportunity. She was hired right away um, at, at the normal rate of pay because the person who hired her reasoned someone like this is really valuable and they're going to be hard to hang on to. I better get her while well, I can. They, I mean, they never see that. I mean, employers are desperate for good people. So my advice to the angry Facebook warrior would be uh, learn proper capitalization and you can probably get hired too. Um, okay. So questions, you ready? I'm ready, man. So first from the website and then we'll jump over to Facebook. So from IsaacMorehouse.com, we got a couple here. Vivek Rajasekhar. I apologize if I pronounced it uh, wrong. Vivek, who is your and TK's favorite hip hop artist and why? Okay. So I, it's not really TK. Uh, for me, it's B.I.G. Um, he's like the Babe Ruth of hip hop. Uh, he's just legend, but he's also like he delivers. I mean, Biggie can just flow. And the the, the number of times where the, the lyrics to his songs are just in my head, uh, I can't even count. So I'm not the most up on contemporary hip hop artists, but B.I.G. Teek, what about you? Uh, Lionel Richie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all night long. All night. Yeah, hey, here you go right here, man. Smooth B, notorious, glorious. My knowledge is infinite. I live in a fortress. I'm so astronomical. Yet on the physical plane, my body's just a shell and the yoke is my brain. I strain to gain spirituality so I can finally be in unity. <laughs> Harmony with thee 
All I Sing, Supreme Being. That's for my boy Smooth B and G Nice. I'm going to get real funky with you. Um, that was my man back in the day for hip hop. But you know what? I'm going to go with uh, as a runner up to Smooth wait, B and G Nice. You can't sing a whole song and tell a whole history of a guy and then be like, but I'm not going to go with him. I'm not going to nominate him. I'm not even <laughs> going to nominate him. That one's for free, ladies and gentlemen. That's for free. The next one I'll be charging for, putting into practice what we just talked about. Smooth B and G Nice. I'm going to make it real funky for you. And I'll go ahead and give a, a little bit. I'll get a little bit more contemporary here. And I'll say favorite hip hop artist. I'm going to go with Tupac uh, because I believe that Pac kept it real. I believe that um, Pac was a true poet. He was a true thinker. And I think he spoke a lot of truth about some of the things that were going on in the industry. He's just the guy that represented keeping it real. Yeah, he's right up there for me, too. He, he's he's amazing. OK, <clears throat> we're going to some would say up. he kept it 100. Yeah, go we're, ahead. <laughs> we're, one thing my wife hates, uh, just like a pet peeve down here in the South, people um, with their South Carolina accents, the way they pronounce the word hundred, they say hundred. Oh, yeah, that'd be a hundred dollar. Hundred. A hundred dollar. She's always I like, love oh, it. I hate that. I don't know why. So I say it now. Ryan Ferguson asks, slightly morbid hypothetical. <laughs> you have a newborn <laughs> child and a terminal disease. The only things you can leave the child are three books and one movie. Which would you choose? <laughs> three books uh, and one movie. That's, that's, not even a, that's not even a fair question. I mean, boy, I guess I would. Uh, I'm, I'm just going off the top of my head here. I reserve the right to later say, what was I thinking? Those wouldn't be the three books. Uh, Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And... Hmm. What would I pick for the third book? I don't know. And for the movie, it would be The Mission. Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro movie from the 1970s. Um, I can't think of a third book right now. There's too many vying for wow. attention. What about you? Man, it's just so unfair. So I know my movie right away. My movie is, is easy. I'm going with The Matrix. Oh, yeah. That's like... The Matrix is like the archetype of everything <laughs> absolutely because if you've seen the matrix you've seen much of what comes after it in terms of sci-fi it's great for what it achieved historically and philosophically there are so many great questions illustrated problems illustrated so many great lessons and so forth I mean, it so it explains almost all part. of the both philosophical and mystical traditions in history the, the concept of you know uh becoming fully awake to the reality that you don't see unless you go deeper in some way, you know, um, yes. that's a good, that's a good choice. Okay, man. Uh, the three books, that's, that, that's so unfair because my top three books is going to change at any point in life. And don't tell us why it's unfair. Just tell us the books, even though I already did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> We're going to have to go fast. All right. Um, I'll go with Time, Space, and Knowledge by Tarthang Tolkul. I'll go with Your Life is Art by Robert Fritz. And then I go with Pranoia by Rob Resney. Um, you can't. The, have you actually finished the Tarthang book? Yes and no, man. <laughs> but let's not. Let's talk about that another okay, episode. That's, that's, that's a totally another, different That is a full just, episode. Just chill to the next episode. Yeah, just like the book. Uh, we'll get to it eventually, but we really never will. Okay. Lino Gill. <laughs> What's your view of Praxis's future? I'm interested in discussing the tropicalization of the model in Latin America. Um, yes, that's my answer. 
Uh, anything to add, TK? Nothing to add. All right, we'll tropicalize that. Christina Miller, what have you found to be the best approaches to explain to people who are in college to get the hell out of there? It's hard when you sound like a crazy person and your voice is drowned out by all their parents, teachers, and friends. All right, I'm going to go quick, and then you can go quick. So, Christina, I I never try to, first of all, I want to make sure, I, I would never try to convince someone to do something that they did not want to do. And I can't know what someone actually wants to do. I can't know from be an outside position, what their true self, you know, really wants, what resonates with them. Now they often don't know. I mean, how, this is true of all of us. We often have to do a lot of reflective work to understand sort of what we actually want amidst all the guilt and obligation and fear and things that, that crowd it. And so what I try to do is just ask questions like, all right, well, why are you here? Well, I want a job. What kind of job do you want? I don't know. So you don't know what it is. Do you think this is going to help you get there, even though you don't know where there is. Uh, not really. Are you happy? Do you enjoy being in class? No. Do you feel like you're gaining things that are valuable to you? No, not really. Could you imagine doing things that are valuable to you? What might that look like? Like asking them questions to, to, to help them sort of discover for themselves if this really isn't what they want. And if, and if they discover that, then it's almost unstoppable at some point. Then they just have to face the costs and decide if they're willing to endure those costs. But I think just questioning them on getting better self-knowledge is the approach that I take. So one of the reasons why I'm a big proponent of the idea, follow your priorities and not just your passion, is because I think you gotta think about more than just what you want, what you desire, what makes you feel good. And you gotta think about what you're willing to pay for. Because if you're not willing to pay for it, it doesn't matter how much you want it. It doesn't matter how good it makes you feel. And I like to point people's attention back to the fact that they have to pay for all of their choices. And I, and I, try, and I try to challenge them to be conscious of that and to think critically about it. I don't believe in trying to get, convince people in a blanket way to not do college. But one of the things I would say to such people is you go ahead and listen to whoever you want to. You want to listen to your mom. You want to listen to your uncle. You want to listen to somebody else. You listen to whoever you want, but you take responsibility for it because there's no refund for regret. If you do what other people want you to do, no matter who it is, including me, including Isaac, including your parents, and you turn out to be unhappy, you are the one that's got to live with the reality of that. You are the one that's got to bear the consequences of your choices in your body and in your circumstances. I don't have the ability, no matter how much I believe in what I'm saying, your parents don't have the ability, no matter how much they love you, to jump inside of your body and experience your pain and your suffering. So whatever you're willing to pay for, you go ahead and do that. You do you. And if you feel like you can be happy living your life the way other people want you to live, you go right ahead. You got that freedom. On the other hand, if you take seriously the notion that there's no refund on regret and you want to take your life into your own hands, think critically about the path you're taking. You know, feel free to break the mold. Uh, let's go to questions on Facebook. You want to, you've got some on uh, a post that I you do. did and I've got some. So you want to go back and forth, ping pong them? Yeah, man. I'll, I'll, I'll kick it with the- uh, People posted for you and I'll do the same. Yeah, I'll kick it with Philip Gross. What are your uncensored thoughts on Neil deGrasse Tyson? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wonder why he needed to say uncensored. I love that. Like, have we <laughs> been like scared of Neil yeah, here no, on the show? Normally, normally we whisper after the show about what we really think of Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know that much about him. Um, 
you know, when I was younger, I thought some of uh, some of the stuff that I had seen or read by him was kind of cool, um, opening, just helping me see the the vastness of the cosmos, and that's always exciting. But I mean, today I mostly know of him from like tweets and stuff where he, you know, pretends that philosophy doesn't matter, uh, even though that itself is a philosophical proposition, or just sort of says outlandish, insulting <laughs> things about people. He just seems a little bit um, clownish to me. Um, I don't really follow him closely or, or put much stock in it. He seems, he seems like an interesting, fun character who's trying to have some shock value and ruffle feathers, uh, and he does it. Um, but I don't, I don't really take him that seriously. I don't know anything yeah. about his actual like scholarship. I have no idea if he's a serious scholar in his field. But as a public intellectual, he seems sort of um, snobbish in a in a way that's kind of unbecoming. You know, I never care if anyone's a serious scholar in their field. All I care about is what I want to know and if you can get that to me. If other people in academia don't respect you or if the world as a whole thinks you're an idiot, doesn't matter to me one bit. If I need my my flat tire fixed and you can do it, you are my man. You know, if I need to know how to add two and two together and you can show me, you are my man. I love Neil. Published in peer review tire changing uh, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, I can't be associated with you. Your academic peers don't respect me. Ah. Anyway, I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm a big fan. I think he's a great speaker. I think he's a great popularizer. People know the name for a reason. I think there are certain basic concepts about astronomy or the value of science as a whole that he articulates exceptionally well. I think he's, um, I think he's a rarity in academia in that when he does speak, it's electric. It's engaging. It's interesting. It's alive. And that is something to be appreciated. I don't agree with him on a, on a whole lot, particularly like you mentioned, philosophy. Uh, the way he bashes philosophy just strikes me as intellectually dishonest. And then you can see the lack of philosophical training that he has whenever he talks about religion as well as philosophy. I think he says some things that are really silly. Uh, there are some objections that can be made against religion that have been made by more sophisticated scholars, philosophers of religion. Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson hardly makes any of them. So I've got my qualms with him. However, if I allow my qualms to make me not like a person, I would literally hate everybody. But I'm a big fan overall. Yeah, you know, it's a good point. Like, while the content of what few things I've seen of his at least tweeted and shared, and they, maybe, maybe they're not even, uh, maybe they're apocryphal, but... I don't really agree with the content or find it that um, rigorous. I love that he exists and I want more people like that because he riles mm -hmm. people up. He says stuff that has like content and that can be disagreed with. And that's, you know what I mean? Like he's, 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 a, he's an interesting character who's out there shouting loud things, whether or not I agree with them. I find, I think that makes the world more interesting. Um, Dude, what other scientist is going to engage R and B singer B O B on the flat earth debate all over Twitter. I mean, come on, come on. You got to have a guy like that. <laughs> did he really? That's awesome. He totally did. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Though. That's awesome. Um, so, okay. I've got uh, Mary Kate opinions on the dank memes. That's just like an insider thing. Like a bunch of Praxis participants and alumni created a little stash of dank memes. I don't really know what that means. Kids these days. Uh, so they're like memes of Praxis staff primarily. Um, sort of poking fun at us. They're funny. You know, they're, they're cute. A little tried. But, you know, it is what it is, guys. Keep it up, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add on that, TK? Shaking my head, Mary Kate. Right, shaking a, my head. I'll do a second one then. So those are, uh, Jeff Call. Well, it's kind of a question. It just says, Ayn Rand's philosophy and entrepreneurship. 
TK? Nah, 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 man. That's not a question. I'm not going easy on that. I mean, you've named a philosopher and then you, you know, use the conjunction to connect that with entrepreneurship. That's not a question. It doesn't count. Sorry. I, I, I love both topics. Love talking about Rand. Love talking about philosophy. But that's in, not a question, man. In fairness, I did say any questions or discussion topics. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, my apologies to you, brother. So you want us to uh, randomly riff on our thoughts regarding Rand and philosophy here. I'll give you a little bit of this. Rand's philosophy and entrepreneurship. Rand's philosophy and entrepreneurship. Um, Rand is quite interesting to me because like all philosophers, she's right. Like most philosophers, like many, she's right about some very important things. And I am absolutely floored by the degree to which this lady is hated. She is hated hard. I don't know if I've seen any philosopher that is more misunderstood and more hated than Rand. I'm not a Randian. I don't agree with everything that she said. I don't agree with her epistemology entirely. But she said some brilliant things and made some really valuable contributions um, to the field of philosophy. Regarding entrepreneurship, a lot of really great entrepreneurs I've met have been people that were influenced by Atlas Shrugged and by Ayn Rand's conception of the virtue of greed. And for those who get the semantics twisted, she didn't mean greed in the pop culture way of pursuing your well-being at the expense of other people's rights, but greed in the sense of being passionate about your own interests and pursuing your own aims and valuing those things and purifying your yourself of this notion that there is such a thing as sacrifice, something that you can do without getting anything in it. So I, I think Rand was a great contributor not only to philosophy, but to thinking of philosophically in a way that makes you more inclined to be entrepreneurial. I find it hard to uh, imagine that someone could read Rand, understand her, not be passionate about markets, and not want to go out there and create value for others in order to meet their own desires. Yeah, I love the connection between Rand's ideas and entrepreneurship because I think despite the almost universal dismissal, or not even dismissal, uh, engagement, but like highly negative engagement with Rand's ideas from academics, the reason her ideas continue to be so profound and, and powerful and they stay alive and her books continue to sell and whatever is primarily because the people who are most moved by them tend to be very successful entrepreneurs. The number of them, as you mentioned, TK, people who are successful builders and creators and doers and, and innovators who read Rand in high school and were inspired by that is astounding. I mean, I run into them everywhere and I think the, the core insight there that is really dovetails nicely into entrepreneurship is most of these people, when they read Rand for the first time, they read someone who was telling them not to apologize or feel guilty about achievement, not to feel bad about being good at things and succeeding and creating things and not to feel like you should feel sad about this because other people might not have the same skills and whatever. And just saying like, you should be proud of yourself, your accomplishments. Like that is awesome. That's, that's what life is about living it to the fullest. And I think feeling like there's a refuge, finally, someone's not telling me I should be apologizing for being good at things, for being successful at things, um, has been huge. I think, and, and the, that's something as an entrepreneur, if whether you're successful or not, it's very lonely. And when you're vilified, even when you're successful, which means you're creating value for people, and then people start to vilify you because you're creating value for them, you can feel very lonely. And to have someone, a philosophy that reminds you like, look, it doesn't matter what they do, what they say. Like, don't feel guilt in your own pursuit of your own rational, enlightened self-interest. I think that's really powerful. Uh, TK, you got another one? 
Oh man, this one's coming from your boy, Derek McGill. He says, Black movie PDP selection and craziest books you two have read and why. How, how, how about I do uh, the black movie PDP? You, you handle the crazy book. <laughs> you got to explain what it is first, just in case anybody doesn't know what a PDP is. Yes, <laughs> right. Because once we explain that, they'll all know what and why black movie okay, PDP then is. Okay, then give the, give the quick background. <laughs> no, or do you no. want me to? Yes, that would be even better. You do it, please. All right. Okay, so we have... A core part of the Praxis curriculum are PDPs, personal development projects, these one-month challenges that you set for yourself with some sort of tangible outcome at the end, and you're attempting to you know, make yourself into a better version of yourself in some specific way. So we as a team, we're always doing PDPs individually as well, and with somehow this joke emerged that um, Derek his knowledge of black films is just not very good, and uh, that's just not acceptable. And so TK actually offered to craft for him a black movie PDP where Derek for spends a month watching like a black movie like every month or every week or every day or something and then like doing a blog post about it. And so TK was trying to come up with the list of what movies would be included. Like if you had one month to learn and master black movies that matter, you know, in black culture, what would you choose? So TK, what would you choose? Man, so Derek, I got your list of uh, movies for every day of the week coming, but uh, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll get you started off with a few. You know that's what you're going to watch on Friday. <laughs> Wait, what's he watching on Friday? Friday. Oh, nice, nice. Well, Come on, well, dude. <laughs> easy, easy on the junction. <laughs> you're killing my street cred here. Uh, <laughs> let me Google some black movies here. No, um, so, all right, I'll, I'll start you off with Spike Lee's Bamboozled. It's heavy. It's intense. Um, it's a great movie. It's it's a really great movie that that takes a a really interesting angle on uh, the 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 ways in which we have been bamboozled or deceived uh, in respect to how we think about race and culture and what it means to be successful. Um, it, it's an intense movie, and I'm not the biggest Spike Lee fan in the world, but this was my favorite Spike Lee film, and it's definitely one of my favorite films. Period. Uh, two, I'm going to hook you up with uh, Love and Basketball that stars Omar Epps and um, Sinead Lathan. I recommend this one along with uh, Eddie Murphy's Coming to America just because I know a lot of people that are really into romantic comedies and love stories. But romantic comedies and love movies that star you know, all black actors tend not to be as popular and well-known. So you can find a lot of really good hidden gems there. So Love and Basketball. Also, go go even further back and uh, check out Coming to America, which is which is more comedic. Um, and then, uh, lastly, I'll, I'll say, uh, how about we go with um, Derek? If you haven't watched Boys in the Hood, you got to go ahead and watch that. Lawrence Fishburne brings the heat. Um, that was Cuba Gooding Jr.'s uh, young Cuban Cuba Gooding Jr. start, and it's just a classic. It's a classic uh, film for its genre. So we'll leave it there, and I'll, I'll feed you more once you watch those. Right now, Wayans Brothers movies, we're not counting them. No Medea movies. We're not counting them. What? You're a traitor. Until he watches those, man. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I yeah, thought yeah. You were like, I thought you were like too good for those movies. No, oh, definitely not, man. I'm going to make Derek watch Martin Lawrence. Well, yeah, I thought there Jamie was going to be a, a separate PDP, just an all-Martin PDP. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Martin gets its own. What's, he probably has like 30 movies, too. Isn't there a movie where Tracy Morgan is some character and like whatever is going on in the movie, he just keeps being like, and, hey, and then we go watch Martin? <laughs> <laughs> 
I think I forget what movie or TV show that was, but yeah, he just kept he just keeps going. <laughs> now we can watch Martin. <laughs> okay. Tracy Morgan. We gotta get him on the show. We do. He's next, promise. Not really. But uh <laughs> Zach Slayback asks as extremely busy people, how do you allow for time in your life? Uh, how do you allow time in your life for boredom? And he references Lenny McGill uh, on this podcast, talking about creating just empty space where he can just let his mind wander without making it scheduled in like an activity where you sit around and command yourself to be bored. You know what that immediately reminds me of is um, a church that I used to be on a worship team of this evangelical church. And as you know, such churches, they always, you know, they want to make room for spontaneous worship times. And I remember seeing the set list and it had like, you know, song number one, three minutes, song number two. And then it said like spontaneous worship, five minutes. <laughs> I love that. It was scheduled in. Um, for me, I, it's kind of scheduled in. I just have a thing. I have to go for a walk, uh, every single day. It's usually about 30 minutes. Sometimes I'll go even longer, like an hour. Um, and I don't have anything planned. Sometimes I will listen to a podcast or do some, some phone calls during that walk, but usually I'll just walk. Um, and I just have to do that once every single day. And sometimes I do it for longer, uh, you know, but, but that's, that's kind of it. I don't do it at any given time, just whenever it fits into the day. So one thing that's been working well for me is when I wake up in the morning, I delineate everything I want to get done that day. And then I give myself a hard cutoff point so that I can create a boundary that, that will motivate me to actually do it and not, not fool around, not BS, not underestimate the time. But then when that hard deadline hits, I make myself go for a walk. If after doing that walk, I feel naturally inspired to go create something and it's playful and it's fun. I give myself permission to do that. But I think instead of trying to schedule time for noble boredom, I think it's best to create boundaries around your work and say, all right, Here's going to be my cutoff point, whether that's when I end my work day or when I choose to take a lunch break or something like that. Just have built in times in your day where you're not touchable, but don't force yourself to do any other kind of activity. Go for a walk, go for a ride, go grab something to eat, listen to some music. Just let your brain be. Do what feels uh, inspiring in the moment at the time. Um, you got another question? Oh, yeah. So I have Grant Parker here. Best, coolest, most interesting side hustles you've had in general and when, and when you needed a quick source of income? Mm. Um, <clears throat> probably, I mean, for me, the most fun and interesting have been uh, writing or speaking side hustles. So um, at various points throughout the last seven, eight years, I've had whether some editing or ghost writing um, or uh, I even had a blog series that I was paid for. Um, so writing and speaking gigs, uh, or like running workshops, public speaking workshops and things like that, that I've done as side hustles. Those have been, those have been my favorite. And really, I mean, I did, a, I've done a little consulting on the side a few times and I didn't, I just kind of felt weird about it. It's like you get paid for like an unknown amount of value you're, you're going to deliver. And like, it just, <laughs> it was weird. So that's really probably at writing and speaking. So, so for me recently, it's been speaking or coaching, although I'm pretty stingy with my time, not as stingy as I should be, not as stingy as Isaac, but I pretty much devote everything to praxis. But uh, currently it's that I would say maybe, you know, you go back a, a more than a decade, then I would say it was bartending or serving because you can always get temporary gigs where someone needs someone to bartend or um, be a server at an event or something like that. 
and I've never been a person who's really had a lot going in the way of side hustles. I've pretty much been all in on whatever job I've had for the most part. And I don't think that's a good or a bad thing, but, um, my focus needs to kind of be all in. Uh, I'm the same way, man. Basketball question. What are you looking Thank forward you, God. to? Matt, Matt Needham. Thank you, Matt Needham. Uh, and God, what are you looking forward to this NBA season? Assessment of the NBA, given KD joining Golden State, does it make them seemingly untouchable? Um, all right. You're, I know you're going to be long on the NBA, so let me go first, and I'll try to be quick. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually, like, excited and also not excited about the NBA this season. Like, my heart is still crushed that the universe screwed up and the Cavs somehow won. Uh, Kyrie Irving somehow won the, the championship last year. Um, that's just awful. It's wrong. Everything's out of place. Steph Curry is the greatest player in the NBA. He's historic. He's amazing. And I, he needed to win that. So I'm all, I'm pained and I'm also pained that KD will change the whole narrative. Not, I I still like it. I still think it's exciting, but I'm also excited. I'm excited to see what they can do. Does, is Golden State seemingly untouchable? Uh, no. In fact, I am more worried about them with KD than I would have been without. Not because he doesn't make them better and not because they have the potential to be the uh, the greatest offensive team that's ever existed, but because chemistry matters a ton. If there's anything you've learned being a student of the game of basketball, really any sport, but basketball is it's very pronounced, is that chemistry and team, the psychological component of the team matters a ton. And that is a very interesting mix that they're going to have to try to work. And if it was just about having the best players on the team, then Dwayne Wade's Miami Heat teams that also had LeBron James should have won every single time, but they didn't because it's not just about the best talent. I mean, even the Cleveland teams, like they shouldn't have lost even last year. I think they have more talent than so anyway, Kyrie Irving's teams, that is. So anyway, uh, I don't think it makes them a shoe in at all. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it unfolds. Yep, I think um, offensively, Golden State only had marginal room for improvement. We're talking about the best three-point shooting team in history. This isn't even open to discussion. This isn't even a debate. This is this is just the empirical data. No team has come close, anywhere close. I mean, Steph Curry in, a, in an 11-month period hit more three-pointers than Larry Bird in, a, in a, his entire 11-year career. I mean, he broke the record hitting 300 the year prior, came back and became the first person to hit 400. Utterly ridiculous. And then you've got Klay Thompson and the other guys. So how much more can you improve an offense that was already good enough to win 73 games and just blow every kind of record imaginable out of the water? Well, you've improved that offense by adding Kevin Durant, but the area where they had the most need for improvement, which made them vulnerable, was defense. And they actually have gotten worse with defense. They need a rim protector. Yeah. Uh, uh, bottom uh, line, that was it. In spite of Curry's struggles, the the defense was their undoing against Cleveland because with LeBron and his size and with Tristan Thompson and the way he cleans up the boards, you look at the difference in that series. Uh, not Bogut people was hurt. Draymond, yeah. the the who's small but a tough defender, you know, missed the game. Uh, their rim defense was the rim defense and rebounds. You know, 
Yeah, pe- people talk about the, uh, about the Draymond Green suspension, but I-, I think that was far less horrific than the fact that no one knew that in that same game they would lose Bogut. And you can see the difference between the way LeBron approaches the rim before Bogut's there, uh, I mean, before he's gone and after he's gone. So now that they've lost Festus Azili, Andrew Bogut, Maurice Spates, um, they've really got to hope that these guys pan out. But here's what I'm excited about if we're still talking about the Warriors, JaVale McGee. I'm going on record and I'm calling it. I've been saying it amongst my friends since they uh, announced that he would be trying out for Golden State and going for a non-guaranteed contract. I think this is the guy that's going to have a breakout season. He's going to become a little mini celebrity in Golden State. He's extremely athletic. He's got a lot of potential. Never played for a good coach. Never played for a great system. Some guys can be great in any system. Some guys can only be great when you put the right people around them. I believe JaVale McGee is one of those guys, and he's finally got the right people around them. I think he's going to surprise a lot of flo- a lot of people and really flourish in Golden State. And I'm super excited to see what he does. Hey, uh, my home team, the, the Pistons, uh, I'm excited about hopefully seeing them take another step forward. And the East is full of complete ridiculousness um with nobody to challenge cleveland so i want to see detroit give them a a run what about your chicago bulls what in the heck are they trying to put together over there it looks like a circus dude by the way cleveland has a bye to the finals they they will always have a it's ridiculous i mean yeah the bulls are either going to be a huge huge disaster or it's going to be a really interesting team why get michael carter williams when you already have Rondo and neither one of them can shoot the three, it's ridiculous when Rondo is the best three-point shooter on your, in, in your, among your guards. Wait, so who is their but, starting five right now? So we don't know because they have Rondo at the point guard. They have Jimmy Butler and Dwayne Wade and likely Taj Gibson. And maybe Miritich is the other guy. We, we don't know who the other guy is going to be, but that's likely going to be the starting four um, be, because they didn't just lose uh, Rose. They also lost Noah. So it's just such a weird it, starting four. It's such a weird combo. Yeah. And they just traded for rookie of year two, three years ago, Michael Carter Williams, who is a, a nice young guard. But I mean, most chari- what's the, what's your most charitable, generous interpretation of what they're trying to do strategically because i don't see it i think because of a combination of frustrated expectations pr purposes and the risk of him leaving next year and low perceived trade value i think they felt like they had to get rid of derrick rose yeah i but, totally get rid get getting rid of derrick rose i think he right. sucks but once what <sighs> <laughs> once once they decide i'm not even gonna re- react to that to resist the resistance is itself resistant so they got rid of uh, Derrick Rose, and I think they felt like they got to make this season mean something. Last year, they, it was such a, uh, a poor. Last year, they came into it with title contention expectations. It was so disappointing. We got to make a run for it. We got to make this year interesting. We got to put fans in the seats while we figure out what we're going to do. And I think they just, I think they followed the common philosophy of getting the best guy you can get without consideration for chemistry. Because there are a lot of GMs that say, so just, just wheel, get the D-Wade out there in a wheelchair, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that's the approach. Get the best guy you can get, and we'll, we'll figure out how to work it out later. But if this, if this doesn't work, if by the time we're at All-Star break, and this is looking like a disaster, I think they're going to end up moving, Jer- um, moving Jimmy Butler and just starting over because he's the one valuable trade piece that you have. I hate to see him go. I think they should just blow it up and build around him, but we'll have to see how it goes. He, this is a weird. He presents, a, he presents a tough quandary though, because 
he's really good and he's the kind of guy you want on your team, but can you build a team around him? Like, I don't know if he's that level good where like you can actually say it's worth building a team fully around him. You know what I mean? Maybe he's a Clay Thompson or a Scottie Pippen, but not a Michael Jordan or a Steph Curry that you're going to build around. But he's like, you know, I don't know. I don't, he's, he's on the borderline for me. Yeah, me, me too. But, but I'm just going to leave you with what makes me sad about the NBA season is that Steph Curry is still one of the most exciting, electric, historical shooters and players we've ever seen. People who only watch ESPN think that he's just a great shooter, but he's one of the best dribblers in history, one of the best offensive creators in history. He's revolutionizing the game. And because he the league in steals last year, too. Right, right. But but he has no defense. Um, but this is for people that watch ESPN and only tuned in during the finals. But because of the troubles that he had post injury, by the way, but I won't go into that because because they lost the finals and the trouble that he had there. It doesn't matter what he does in the regular season. He's not winning MVP. They, there's no way in the world they're going to give him MVP. It doesn't matter. Um, if he breaks every record that's ever existed, it won't matter. They still won't he, give him MVP. He can hit six. He can hit 600 threes. And literally nothing Curry does matters unless they go back to the finals and unless they beat the Cavs and unless he has a dominating finals performance. I, yeah. I, I have a feeling more so than any other season, even though there's a lot I'm excited about, that this is one of those seasons where n- nothing matters. Just please put the Cavs and the Warriors back yes, into the finals. I'm so not interested about watching it unfold because I just I just right. want to get there. And, and after this, I'll shut up because that's it. You know what I mean? Like all that matters. Like uh, Golden State won the first time, but Cleveland had some injuries. Cleveland won the second time. Golden State had some injuries. Both sides made their excuses. Get them in there for round three. Let's see what happen, happens. But I feel like that's all that matters. Everything else like is just the a long could just say They could just go up for like a bid. Like, all right, how much is it worth to fans to pay to have us skip everything and just go right, <laughs> go right there? Uh, dude. I feel like millions could be raised. Even the Toronto Raptors fans, especially, especially. <laughs> All right. You got another question? Oh, How yeah. How long yeah. should we go, by the way? We have a ton more questions, and we're almost at an hour. What, what do you want to do? Do you think we're going to bore people if we try to get through them all? Should we end soon, or should we keep going? We should end soon, but I, but I say soon as in two more questions. I'll do one. You do one. All right. Oh, that means I got to pick a good one. Yeesh. Yeah, you got to pick a good one. All right, Michael Hogan. Michael. I'm surprised we didn't get a basketball question from you or a Cubs question, but maybe that's because you feel the Cubs coming and being a Cleveland Indians fan, you're getting really nervous. It's all right. I understand. This is our year. It's destiny. Here's Michael Hogan's question. If you're unable to do homeschooling, financial burdens, single parent, lack of expertise, what's the best alternative? Related, if a parent-parent consortium taught multiple kids, how would that differ from a school? Uh, So... Sorry, I was reading. <laughs> I was looking at other questions, but I did hear it. Um, okay. I mean, I think I think there's a couple ways to go about it. So if you, you know, you're a single parent and you're working and you can't homeschool your kids in today's world, I, I would say just let them stay home, do whatever they want to do. But you can, truly, I actually think that would be a better education for them. Um, in today's world, uh, that would be very hard and there would be legal um, dangers for sure. So you couldn't do that. So working out some sort of co-ops or, you know, hey, uh, kids are with you while I'm at work and vice versa, co-ops and things like that. I think those are awesome. And even something like the Sudbury School where kids are dropped off and they're there, you know, um, they're there for the day. They're totally different than a regular school in that they don't have any structure whatsoever. 
there's just parents there. Um, and you can do this at varying degrees. You know, some places like Montessori are very structured, but it's a structure that promotes play and openness. Um, others like Sudbury, there's no structure at all. It's just unschooling, but just with a bunch of other kids in a building so that the parents can work and whatever else. So I think there are a lot of different combinations you can do. I think the main thing is to think, why, why do I have kids? Um, what do I want? What is my, what is my mission, my duty, my desire as a parent? What's the best way to do that? And I want to orient and structure my life in such a way to ensure I can deliver to my kids what I know is the most valuable to them. And if you frame it from that framework, so much more, so many more possibilities open up than if you start from the framework of, uh, I'm single or two spouses, we have to work and we have to do this and we have to do this. Therefore, what table scraps are left for the kids? Oh, these are the only two options. We'll do this one. But if you think of it as I have to be the kind of parent that I want to be, that's my number one priority. What kind of life do I need to build to make that happen? I think approaching it from that way, you start to see so many opportunities and options from co-ops with other parents and things like that um, to all the way down the line. Um, I think it's there's always a way to create an environment for your kids that's optimal given the constraints you face. All right. So what about that second part related? If a parent parent consortium taught multiple kids, how would that differ from a school? Yeah, it's totally different. I mean, so, you know, it can be various gradations, but I, I took a bunch of homeschool classes. We did co-ops where one family would do a unit and then another family, whatever. And like the parents would teach. And then I did homeschool classes where we go once a week and there'd be, it was much more like, uh, it was much more college like in some sense that you just sort of like pick a few classes you want like my kids do a few classes sometimes. My son just did like a marketing class with some other kids. Um, my girls do gymnastics. And these are homeschool classes. And so it's, you go in fully voluntarily. Like when you're at school, it's not like, you know what? I'm going to pick, I'm really interested in this. Let me get this teacher and let me test out for th six weeks having this teacher teach me this one thing. And it's like, you just show up at the place based on your zip code and you just enter the conveyor belt and just do whatever you're told to do the whole time. And yeah, sometimes they have class choices within the, the confines of the barbed wire facility. But um, it's very different because it comes from that place of, choice, the student and the parent are the customer with direct accountability to the teacher that they're paying or that the other families that they're trading lessons with. Everything's very adaptable. Almost in every case, two or three weeks in, they have to radically change things based on the kids. And, you know, um, it's just a much more organic way of going about it. And I would say done, done best. It's always driven by the child's interest. Anyway, if the kid's like, Hey, I really want to learn more about graphic design. Well, let's go find somebody that we can pay to have you, you know, learn from. Um, and if we can get five other kids to get together and do it, like Heather did that with a coding class and Elle was interested in coding. So she found a guy who, uh, was willing to teach it and found six other kids, uh, homeschool kids that were willing to take it and set it up and pay the guy to teach him coding. And so it's driven by the interest of the learner and it's totally adaptable. Yeah, I think it's important to note that when it comes to school, school isn't about the location or the size of the class. School isn't school because you're in a classroom sitting at desk in groups of 20 with one teacher. What 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 makes school school when you look at the criticisms of people like John Taylor Gatto or some of the criticisms we've made is that it's compulsory and it's uh, it's bureaucracy driven. You don't get to learn what you want and you don't get to leave when you want. But other forms of learning, just like a yoga class or a dance class, they're voluntary and they're consumer driven. 
and the prices are determined by the market. Those are huge differences that, that affect the quality of the service, the accountability between customer and provider, and uh, the, the customizability of the curriculum. And I would also say anytime it's possible, and there are some legal exemptions for family businesses in some cases, and I know for agriculture, to let your kids be around the workplace, your workplace or others, you know, unless they hate it, don't force them to do something they hate. But this is one thing that I love it when I see, and when you travel, especially in poorer countries, you see it a lot. Um, And obviously most of these countries have much to be desired in many of their social and political institutions, certainly. But the ability for like a kid to be around you know, when I go into a restaurant sometimes, um, oftentimes in like a Vietnamese restaurant or something here, there will be, you know, a family and like the kids are helping out, they're working, whatever, and they're kind of around and they're interested, they're learning stuff. I think that's pretty awesome if you can make that happen. And again, you know, not like forcing your kids to do it if it's awful for them. But I think that kind of exposure is cool and it, it's, it can be hard to do, but it can be done. Um, I've got two, TK. Can I? One is I'm going to call somebody out. And the other one is sort of a fun, jokey one that we can end on. Sound good? Yeah, yeah. Sounds real good. All right. So we got one here that it was like someone's rant disguised as a question. And you sort of pushed further. Uh, Sean Michael says, logical consistency, question mark. I'm looking at you, pro-choice and pro-gun control and pro-gun anti-abortion people. Winky face. And TK, you're like, what's the question? He said, sorry, what do you guys think the biggest barriers for people to realize their logical inconsistencies when arguing for it and then against a point that seems to be logically the same in principle? So he's he wants us to call out people who are pro-choice. They think people should be able to uh, legally abort um, a f- child or a fetus uh, and also who are um, pro-gun control, think that government should not allow people to own guns. And vice versa, people who are in favor of owning guns, but who oppose abortion. And Sean seems to be the implication being that these people are logically inconsistent and they're idiots and we should call them out. I, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I don't think you have to be logically inconsistent to hold either of those positions. In the case of if you're pro-choice, everybody that I hear who's pro-choice, they say it's a woman's body and it's her right to choose what to do with it. This implies that they don't believe that a fetus is an independent, separate human being. So the question hinges on that. I've never met a pro-choice person who thinks, yeah, it's uh, a mother should be able to kill her born children because it's her body. No, no, no. They recognize murder is a bad thing. They don't think it's murder because they think that it's part of someone's body. So that's a question that has to be answered. When is a human life a human life? Because everybody thinks it's wrong to kill another human. So that's that's the, the reason someone is pro-choice and being pro-gun control is, well, I think guns are dangerous and I think government should ban dangerous things and maybe dangerous because they can hurt or kill someone. Again, some human being, if you don't believe a fetus is a human being saying you can abort a fetus, but you shouldn't let people own guns because they could hurt people is not, you may disagree with it. And I actually do disagree with it. Both of those uh, positions but it's not logically inconsistent according to their own logic. And conversely saying I should be allowed to legally own a gun. Um, there's nothing in there that condones any form of murder of any kind. Um, I should be able to own a gun. Maybe I like to hunt. Maybe I want to defend myself from being murdered. That's perfectly acceptable. And saying, I think abortion is murder and therefore murder should be illegal is 
also perfectly consistent. There's, there's no logical inconsistency here. You can disagree with the arguments and maybe those people use really bad arguments, but there doesn't have to be logical inconsistency for either of those combinations of views. Yeah, it, it amazes me how how often this charity is 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 left ungranted. I mean, if someone is, pro, I've never met a person who is pro life that isn't that for the reason that they believe this is an independent entity that has rights and that this would constitute murder. So, all of the disagreement on this issue is really philosophical. It's really philosophical about how we define life and and you know when life is conceived, when we're dealing with an autonomous entity or uh, an individual that has rights. So I don't think there's inconsistency. I, I just think there are philosophical differences about an important question regarding how we define life. And I think it's important to know when we disagree because of different views we have about our fundamental premises versus when we disagree because we're just flat out being logically inconsistent. I don't think that's the case. Now, now there, I should say, there, I have definitely heard what could be interpreted, and again, if you want to be really charitable, I think you can find a way to, to make this not necessarily inconsistent, but um, a sort of pro-choice line that's people need choice to make their own decisions about their own bodies and their own lives. If you just take that at face value, then when those same people say you shouldn't be allowed to buy a big gulp because it's bad for you or smoke marijuana or own a gun because it's dangerous, you could say, well, wait a minute. I thought people had choice with their own bodies and their own property, including their bodies. Um, how are these consistent? If you look at it purely on that standpoint, like, yes, that, that sounds very inconsistent. I think most people who hold those views, if you push them, not that I agree, but they would say, well, I think you know, saying you're not allowed to get a particular medical procedure that hurts no one but yourself. If you obviously, if you believe that a baby is not a human or that an unborn baby is not a human. Um, but I do think it's okay for government to ban someone from doing something that could potentially hurt a third party or something like, like, again, I think there's problems with that the more you dig, but I can see how to that person, they could square that in their mind very loosely. So being, giving them, you know, if you come at them from, oh, so you just like murder or, oh, you just hate choice, you're inconsistent. Like, I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Um, hey, but you know what? If you come in at somebody like that, you should ask yourself why you're even talking to them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if you if you genuinely can't believe that the person you're talking to is sincere, why why waste your time? Move on. That is a great point. Chris Pearlberg, elevator etiquette. That's a great topic, TK. Elevator etiquette. <laughs> Let me give you my treatise on elevator etiquette. Uh, when you enter the elevator, if it is unoccupied, you can do whatever you want to do. Just make sure there aren't security cameras if you're going to do anything embarrassing. Um, or make sure there are if you want it to be on YouTube. If you enter an elevator and there's someone in the elevator and they are standing by where the numbers are, sort of blocking them, walk in towards the back or side of the elevator in case other people need to get in later, not right by the door. Face the door, always. Do not ever stand facing any other direction in the elevator. It's creepy and weird. You always face the door when you get in. You turn and face it. And then you just politely say, uh, could you hit number four for me or wherever you're going? If they're not by the buttons, you walk over and you stand by the buttons and push yours. And if you stay by the buttons, you offer to press floors for anyone else that comes on the elevator. What floor can I press for you? You let other people exit unless they're waiting longer than you. You get out of the way. Uh, and the, the main thing is that you always turn to face the door. If you ever try it, try it. Walk into an elevator that other people are in and just stand facing 
the back or left or right walls instead of uh, the front where the door is and just stand there totally normally and see what people do. You'll, you'll destroy the fabric of uh, society. <laughs> my elevator etiquette, my, my elevator etiquette is my own business. <laughs> <laughs> I am telling you this just for your own good and self-preservation. Nothing more. This is not, this is not, morally uh absolute this is simply for practical purposes i don't want civilization to um unravel so face the front of the elevator hey zeke we've gone for a long time we need we need to wrap up but i I just saw keith farrell's or keith farrell's question on on yours i think i think you got to do it oh how do you get past imposter syndrome and, and syndrome and present yourself prevent yourself from setting unrealistic unhealthy high standards expectations for yourself how do you keep your expectations grounded while striving to be the best because balance here is key. Um, so to me, the best way to get over imposter syndrome is just to step back and realize that everyone's an imposter. Um, nobody knows what they're doing. Truly. They're the, the first great secret of life is to discover that you don't know what you're doing. And the second great secret is to discover that neither does anyone else. Everyone's experimenting. Everyone's playing. Um, everyone's trying and the people who seem like they know what they're doing, they're just guessing with more confidence and they've done it over more repetitions. Um, <clears throat> over and over again. So that mindset to me is huge. Um, keeping your expectations grounded. I don't really believe in keeping your expectations ground. I guess it depends on how you define expectations. Like keep your possibilities as wild and outlandish as possible. And that's something that I struggle with. I'm always trying to push myself more. Like, why not? Why not assume that I can do something 10 times, a hundred times, a thousand times bigger than I first thought. Why not? Let's just think that way. Let's think as if that's true. Let's think that that's what I'm actually building. Um, I think that's amazing in the realm of possibility. But if you attach yourself to it as a specific goal and you will feel ashamed or stressed if you don't hit it, then that's not good. So just don't do that. Think of it as a possibility that you're working towards um, and not some quantifiable goal in a certain timeline that you must achieve or else you're a loser. Sort of have a, a detached excitement in being a part of the possibility. That's how I'd approach it. What about you? Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I, I would say the same thing with the uh, the part about imposter syndrome. I think the real key is you got to get out there and socialize and meet people because it's easiest to put people on a pedestal when you don't know them, when you don't ask questions, when you've never seen them be vulnerable or when you've never talked to them about their vulnerabilities. And it's the lack of that knowledge that causes us to question ourselves and fall into this trap of thinking, I'm the only one that ever feels like this. I'm the only one that ever struggles like this. So I've always been really good at asking questions that get people to talk about their vulnerabilities. And I use tact. I don't do this in the first 10 seconds of meeting someone, but you get out there, you socialize, you engage people. But when you're talking with other artists or other entrepreneurs or other thinkers, ask them things like, what's the hardest part about your career that nobody knows? That's not a real provocative question. That, that's not an obtrusive question. Lots of people love answering that. Lots of people love talking about the difficulties they have that other people underestimate. Or Isaac and I have both been asked this question, and I, I've asked it before, like uh, when we first got married, questions like, um, what's the hardest thing about being married? And what's the best thing about it? You can throw that in there too. Whenever I'm in the car with an Uber driver, I always say, what's the best part about being an Uber driver? What's the hardest part about it for you? What's the best part about living here in Texas? And what's the worst part about it for you? When you just ask simple, uh, unintimidating questions like that, people will tell you some simple things that you would have never imagined on your own that makes you realize whether it's raising kids or being married, starting a business, 
you know, writing a book, whatever it is, everybody has had moments of doubt and vulnerability. Everybody has struggled, but you just got to get out there and see it and develop a vocabulary for it. Um, regarding the second part, um, I'm not a big fan of balance, so I, I don't think balance is the key. I think balance, is, the only thing that balance is the key to is mediocrity and a boring life. But what I would say about expectations is simply don't have them. Just have ambitions. You don't even need expectations. Ambition, desire, and having practical plans, that's enough. Have things that you want, create a plan to get there, and go after it. Instead of expectations, replace that with experimentation. Just experiment and see what happens and base your beliefs on what what actually happens. So if you want to make a million dollars, there's no need for an expectation. You got your goal. There's nothing wrong with desiring it. Go after it and see what happens. The only thing you can know for sure is that by going after something, you'll learn new things and you'll grow in new ways. But experiment. Don't expect. You don't even need it. Expectations won't do anything for you other than stress you out. Yeah. when you said identify your desires and go towards them, the way that I do this in a way that doesn't create those sort of goals that make you feel crappy, not big on goals is to say, okay, one of my desires is I really want to, let's say, write and write books and have a big audience or whatever. So that's sort of this vague, unquantified goal. It's not like I want to have a novel by this date and this time. I think those kind of goals often are like, eh, not always the best. But to have this larger, I want to be a great writer. Okay, how can I get closer to that? I can identify some roadblock that I face to chip away at or some way, some activity that will help me get become a better writer a little bit every day. And if I don't ask where am I going to be quantifiably, how good of a writer, at what date and all that, but instead say, I want to be and go crazy with it. I want to be the best writer that's ever lived. That's a cool possibility to want. And then say, how am I going to get there? I'm going to try to make myself a little bit better of a writer every single day and start putting together challenges and activities for yourself. That way you have some big thing out there driving you that raises your ambitions and says, wow, I, I can do whatever I want to do. Why not? Why not try to be the greatest writer that's ever lived? Why not? Who cares? Let's go for it. Without making it something like have a book published by next summer, which makes you all stressed, but to say to in order to get there, I've got to become a little bit better every single day. I think that combination is, is really powerful. Um, all right. Uh, recommendations. Oh, um, how about the TV show, the X files? Oh man. That's like one of the greatest ever. Yeah, man. Heather, Heather and I are watching it over again. We're, we just finished season five. And, 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 uh, how, how are you enjoying it so far? Oh, I mean, it's, you know, I, I watched it pretty much when it came out, uh, maybe a couple seasons in, I started watching it when I was a young teenager and got all into it back in the day. And I've only ever watched one-off episodes since. Um, so watching it all again in sequence has been amazing. If if The X-Files is, is too big of a commitment and you don't want to start a new TV show, then I'll recommend a little mini-series called The Lost Room. And that's like a, a three-part. Each episode is maybe an hour to an hour and a half max. And that's, that, that's a nice little kind of... Uh, science fiction, fun, suspense, uh, suspense show to check out. So right, I'm, I'm recommending mind trips for you today by way of media. Well, let's stick in with the theme. I'll, I'll recommend one that everyone's heard about cause it's really popular, but if you haven't watched it yet and you're wondering if it's just like hype and whatever, yeah, there's a lot of hype, but it's great. It's worth watching. It's called stranger things on Netflix. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, I guess it was a season of a show. I think they're going to have another season. So check it out. All right, Teak. 
This was fun. We only got to maybe two thirds of the questions, if that, um, but that's a good sign. We're getting a lot of questions. So thank you listeners. You're the real MVP. And uh, if you like the podcast, go give us a rating, go, go review it and rate it on uh, iTunes. Peace out, Teak. Peace out from the beehive.